Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Master amongst gamers, Sage is the king of ring himself. But your boy Thicky Smalls, Gerard Michaels, in the house. Welcome back to Gas Digital. It's your boy, Thicky Smalls, the funniest man you never heard of. Gerard Michaels here for another episode of Slick and Thick. And to my right, at six foot three, 200 pounds, and every single one of them is a problem. The master of punks, the tamer of sages, the king of the ring himself, the CEO of the RNC. Pretty Mickey Gall. How are we doing, Mickey? Well, Big G. I'm doing great, man. You're standing, back, standing. back, back acting up a little bit. We're good. Yeah, Feeling I gotta good. Keep, gotta keep people on their toes. You know, what I mean, you never know if I'm be sitting, if I'm be standing. Yeah, you know, it's for the viewers. Little stand up you know, game, little takedown yeah, game. Yeah. Speaking of the viewers, we have a big guest today. Hell yeah! Who's our guest today, Mick? Man, we are joined by none other. We we got a lot of uh, things to read off. He's a former Cleveland police officer. Cleveland PD. He's, uh, Cleveland suburban. He's an author. A best-selling author. He's the father of our producer. He's the father of our engineer. He is, and now also as a musician, we've heard. He's a musician. This is an actual renaissance man and a friend of the program. Mafia royalty. Mafia royalty. He's had his feet on both sides (laughs) of, uh, you know, this is how a little little pooch just came by the screen there. Well, I I got a little ADHD. Sorry, I see a pooch. I got to point it out. Big fan of the pooch. Also big fan of our guest. Rick Perello, how are we doing, Rick? Rick Perello in the house. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Glad welcome. To be here. Now, nice, to, nice to hear that Cleveland accent. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for having me. Cleveland rocks. Cleveland rocks. Cleveland rocks. Ohio. Now, do you know why they call Cleveland the mistake by the lake? Well, they don't call it that anymore, but go ahead. No? Um, is it because the, they, there's a misspelling? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Look at... Look smart. at you knowing things. Stuff. He's smart. He knows things. Did you know that, that it was from the, from the founder, the Cleveland? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Cleveland. There, there's an, there was an E that they didn't put into Cleveland. Is that correct? E or an A, maybe. Maybe. I don't know that much huh. about it. The biggest mistake is when they kowtowed to the mob and turned the Indians into the Guardians. That's the biggest mistake by the Malakas. That's the, the, that's the mistake by the Malacca is what that is. It's ridiculous. Now, you are... Someone that's lived, what would you say, three lives, four lives here? A few. I've worn a few different hats, you might say, yeah. Now, the coolest thing, I'm going to get right to it. Christian was like, make sure you bring this up. And I'm like, of course I'm going to bring this up because this is cool as hell. Before we even get to, you wrote a book that turned into an awesome movie. Is it true that you played music with Miles Davis? No. Sammy oh, Davis. What the You're hell? Close. What the hell, You're Christian? Sa- You're Sammy, Sammy there. Davis? Sammy, Sammy Davis? Davis. Yeah, some it, of us have our notes right. You some of it, us, uh, you know. <laughs> well, the good thing some is... Some of us are... I, this isn't live, so I mean, I could just do it over. <laughs> but we'll keep it 100% G-real. Sammy Davis? Sammy Davis wow. Jr., yeah, yeah. That's wild. Was Dino there? Was Dean Martin Occasionally, there? Occasionally, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra on occasion. Whoa, you were you yeah. were with the Rat Pack, man? I was, yeah. I followed in my brother's footsteps. Ray, he's nine years older, and he was a drummer, and he worked with Sammy Davis Jr. for five and a half years. When he, he left, the audition me, and I went on the road uh, with Mr. D for two and a half years. You were on the road with Sammy Davis Jr. Was, for yeah. two and a half years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Got any crazy stories? 
Oh, there's a few here and there, but uh, nothing that comes to mind. Nothing, nothing that comes nothing to, comes to mind. mind. I'm actually working on a memoir. It's my next book. The next book? So, yeah, it's the next book. Oh, yeah. so, all right. Then we can go fuck ourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want to know about it, you can pay $5.99, buddy, like everyone read else, it, yeah, asshole. Read the next book, jerk Yeah, don't, don't you want to get some pre-orders here? Tell us at least one story, man. What's the, uh, I'm trying to think of what there, what there is to tell. I mean, I was young. I was, I was only 18. Uh, yeah, and, there's definitely and, uh, no stories, and it has nothing to do and, with your uh, wife sitting right over there. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the first, my first audition date, when I got the call, I was in uh, community college. You know, I was interested in police work, but my parents didn't want me to pursue that line of work. So I, I had a, a, a little bit of a fleeting interest in electronics, so I got into uh, uh, community college, but I couldn't handle the math. Electronics is all math. And uh, it was perfect time. I got, I got my, my brother was leaving after five and a half years. He got tired of uh, being on the road, and... Uh, and uh, the music director, George Rhodes, longtime music director for Sammy, called me and uh, basically gave me an audition date in Minneapolis at the Carlton Dinner Theater f for, uh, uh, for a weekend. And uh, I, I asked him, am I going to sit in during a rehearsal? He said, no, babe, you got the, you got the gig. No, for three, babe. <laughs> you got the gig for three nights. And after the first show, Sammy called all of his personal musicians. He carried a rhythm section and a trumpeter back to his dressing room and uh, he came up to me just after the first show he shook my hand and said you're a bitch now back then what that meant <laughs> was you know you're a bitching player you're a hell of a player and uh, they liked the way i played the show now i've tried, uh, to, explain, I've tried explaining that to, to so many uh women yeah but it doesn't hey, really well hey, nowadays. you're a bitch babe <laughs> you're sure yes so this is around yeah. what what time but no i meant you're you're good. I only because I don't know it your names individually. Like, can't you take a compliment? Jeez, always with the crazy yeah, bros. Old school, you know. I'm a classic. Kind so you're of guy. out there. You're playing. You're you're playing the drums. So you're. How did your brother get in with these guys? He he was uh, recommended by a drummer who was a, a a great drummer who was a friend of our family of my father who worked with the musicians union. He was an officer, Louis Belson, the great Louis Belson. Mm -hmm. uh, when Sammy needed a drummer, uh, Louis recommended um, Ray. And my brother to him, and my brother went on the road for five and a half years and traveled wow. all over. Yeah, and I took so over. Did you, did you ever see Don Rickles then? You saw Rickles? You see? I don't think I ever saw Don Rickles, but we worked with uh, Frank and Dean a few different times. What was it like working with uh, the chairman of the board? Well, I mean, when I say we, I mean Sammy worked for him. I was a drummer. I'm, I'm uh, you know, off to the side. Uh, I was introduced to him from the from the drum riser down to the uh, you know the conductor and and. Uh, and he waved to me, and I waved to him. Was there like a weird thing, like a, well, you, you know, you had like stage directions? Don't ever look Mr. Sinatra in the eye, kid. <laughs> no, but they did have, you know, they had security, and uh, yet they both carried bodyguards, and yeah, it was it was a cool thing, especially for being 18 years old. It was very cool. So for somebody that writes about the mob a lot, your dad was a union guy with the musicians who knew Sinatra? He, he was, he that was, seems like a coincidence of sorts. He was a little on the fringe, you might say, but he was a, he was a legit guy. He stayed, uh, he stayed, he didn't cross over that line too far, otherwise he would have wound up uh, dead or in prison. Yeah, and then you became a police officer. I did. Because yeah. that's what people do after they get done touring with... The Rat Pack. Yeah. 
Despite that, I did. Uh, I passed my psychological testing. <laughs> really? So, you what? What made you decide you didn't want to do the music anymore? Well, I had the interest in in police work that was really pulling me, and uh, and you know, as a road musician, you're traveling all the time. You know, hotel to hotel, city to city, and uh, I think two, about two years was enough for me, and I worked another half a year and. Was it good money? Was it decent money? It was. I, I think I started, now this is 1981, I was 18, and I think I started making 600 a week, and then uh, after a year, my father kept bugging me, you're there a year, go ask for a raise, go ask for a raise, you're there. And I finally did. I went to George Rhodes and asked him about a raise, and he said, oh, you got to talk to Sammy about that. I'm like, oh, great. What's, yeah. uh, Christian, what's $600 in 1981 money and today's money? Is that like uh, 15000 like what's the what, what's the, yeah, what's the what's conversion? What's the uh, conversion yeah. on that? And Two uh, years rolling with the Rat Pack, and you like that seems like the type of thing like people would wait their whole life to have the opportunity to do that. And for you, it was like for some, wasn't it just didn't it didn't move you? Well, it did. I mean, it did for two and a half years, and, and uh, I think that's why I've gone back and I want to write about it. Mm. Uh, yeah, a lot of great Guys, memories. It's two thousand dollars today. Wow. Two thousand. So you were making like a hundred grand. You were making a well, we hundred grand as a drummer. We worked thirty weeks a year, so you'd have to do the do the math there. But after wow. a year, I got a, a one hundred dollar raise. I asked Sammy, he was outside his hotel room, and he said, "Yeah, babe, you know that. Yeah, don't worry about it." And about two weeks later, I had a hundred dollar raise in my paycheck. Wow, very cool. How was Sammy as a person? He was great. A yeah. lot of ball busting, a lot of teasing amongst the crowd. They call it starting some shit, you know, and. And uh, I was the youngest uh, member of the entourage at that point when I came in. And uh, I think sometimes that my father had to talk to Sammy's uh, executive um, secretary, Shirley Rhodes, who was George Rhodes, the conductor's wife, and, and maybe maybe ask her to keep an eye on me. Because if, if I was on the ropes, she'd say, don't, you know, leave Ricky alone, leave him alone, leave that boy alone, don't mess with him. So it was sort of uh, does does any protective. particular gig stand out as as a, above the others? We did a uh, benefit for the uh, I think the Palm Desert Hospital in Palm Springs where Frank Sinatra was from, and that was a star-studded event. I can't remember uh, Angie Dickinson, the former presidents. I mean, uh, and it was Frank, Sammy, and Dean, and Frank's daughter. Wait, uh, I have, I have a question. Uh, as a Jersey guy, Frank Sinatra. You said it's Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra's from Hoboken. Frank Sinatra, well, he lived. No, where he lived. Oh, okay. Late, yeah, late, lived where he lived where he's from. I was like, we got, yeah. we got, to, we got to keep Frank Sinatra. Yeah, you know Frank is ours. Yeah, Jersey boys, yeah, but, can't be. Yeah, yeah but Vegas yeah. has him. L.A. has him. No, no, no. Palm Springs yes. has him. No, yeah. No, yeah, the world yeah. has him now. But yeah. you know what I mean. It's, what I'm happy is that we got the memoir shit out of him. We Jedi mind tricked them. It's co oh, good job. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. It's coming. It takes a while to come back. I'm better writing things down, you know. But uh, that's gonna yeah, be awesome. Stories. And you have a pension for getting your books made into movies. I've been I've been lucky. I've been yeah. fortunate. Yeah. So I mean, you know, was your dad a hefty looking Irishman? I'd like a role. I mean, that, that he could play Dino. You know, you got to write these into the writers. You know, I tried to get in some scenes myself when they were filming Kill the Irishman in, in Detroit, but they were just blowing blowing things up. We wanted to know if well, you were Val Kilmer. Yeah. Was Val Kilmer yeah, so we based on the you? movie? Was he there during? <laughs> no, no, no. It was the character of Val Kilmer? Oh, it was a was uh, sort of a composite character based in part upon. Uh, the former, well, the former intelligence uh, officer in, at Cleveland PD, who had sort of a um, 
close relationship, a friendly relationship with Danny Green, but he would have put him in jail if he could. Mm. Yeah, but it was a composite law enforcement character. Yeah. Where, where did you uh, get uh, your information? What were you doing when da the Danny Green stuff was going on? Were you working in the police force at that time? No, I was only um, 15 in 1977 when he was killed. Okay. So I was, I was a you're, kid you're, when that was going on. You were three years before traveling with Sammy Davis when that stuff was going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's like, it, you know, if what we read up, you know, and saw the documentaries after we saw the movie, I was unaware all that was happening. That's almost like, you know, late 70s, 80s Dublin, it seemed like. It was like IRA-style yeah, bombings. Yeah, bombings. Yeah. That was the weapon of choice, bombs. Uh, yeah. And what they do is they, they they'd sometimes uh, they they put the bomb in a, uh, they called it a Joe Blow car, car registered to a fictitious name. They put the bomb in the Joe Blow car, and then the only thing they had to do was get a parking spot next to their target's car. And then they, and that's what happened that's, with, with Yeah, that's guys. how they ultimately got uh, Danny. Yeah, that's how yeah, they got Danny Green. And that's him. how they got his partner, uh, John Nardi, uh, a few months earlier. How? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. They didn't they didn't uh, depict that properly in the movie. It was his own car blown up, I believe. It could it could have been in the, just that in was, the movie uh, at least. I know uh, I'm sure they took a lot of liberties. Oh yeah, with, the, the yeah. movie is the uh, is the Hollywood version of the story. But it was uh, Vincent D'Onofrio that played that played John Nardi and in, in, uh, incredible you know, movie and an incredible cast. You know oh, the, the gosh, late yeah. Ray Stevenson, who I love from Rome, yeah. uh, as uh, Danny as Danny Green, and a very interesting character uh, who you've written about extensively is Shondor Rhimes. Sh Shondor Burns, Burns. Yes, sorry, yes, not Don yes. Rhimes, and that's that's Christopher Walken's character yes. in, in Kill the yeah. Irishman. Right now, he is kind of like uh, almost a um, what's his name. Uh, you say Meyer Lansky? Yes, like a Meyer Lansky you, type. I figured you were going with a with a crime ridden Jew. Yeah, but but it's also the, the way the way he went about his business, you know, and in, in kind of hiring out the Italians for the muscle, but also running his loan shark and a legitimate business on the side. It, one of the interesting. I don't things, know much about Chandra Burns other than what we saw in the movie. Yeah, I did a little research. Like it's crazy the the empire he was kind of, and what I really liked about doing the research on it, and and, and you know, I, I wonder what your thoughts on this are as well it's almost like new york a hundred years earlier where it wasn't just the italians there was there was irish sex there was a jewish sect there was you know italian sex and then the italians in cleveland would do business with the irish in cleveland to kind of like screw the new york italians there was like there there was it was game of thronesy in many ways it was very you know i guess it, i guess it's all the all the Great Lakes shipping is where all the money was, I, I would imagine. Some, sure, some of it. And also the fact that Cleveland, and this goes back to the 20s and 30s, uh, the, the position the position on the map roughly halfway between New York and Chicago. Mm. So you had the, the gangsters way back, you know, passing through, which we kind of see, you know, uh, trafficking of drugs along those major, those major routes. I, I remember... Uh Cleveland was also a good hub during uh, Prohibition because it was kind of near Canada. Yes, you rum could, running. Could the rum, rum running, running was, yeah. was big Coming in across Cleveland. the lake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you heard about this stuff growing up. This was what made you interested in writing about Shondor, Danny Green. That that kind of did they actually call it the Danny Green War, or was that something that they made in the movie? Uh, it, it was, it, it's, it started really because of the, the murder of my grandfather. You know, that's how I got interested, and that harked back to Prohibition. So that was the first book that I wrote, and I swore, and that was a nine-year labor of love. 
took me three years to uh, to get published. Uh, and that's called The Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia? Yes, Barricade Books. Originally, now the, I, I have the rights now, and I'll be republishing it in about a, a month or so. But that that's where my interest came from, and it uh, took me three years to get published. And uh, I swore I would never write another book after that. But I was newly married, and, and you know, when you're commercially published, traditionally published, they send you, like, hot off the press, a case of books. And when I got that book in my hand, I, I knew I had to do it again. And the most logical next book was about Danny Green, because I wrote a little bit about him at the end of the first book. Yeah, and he was a, you know, he was almost like in, in, in some parts of the population, he was like a folk hero in, in, yeah. in Cleveland. Almost like a Robin Hood. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very interesting. It was cool seeing, uh, seeing like the real, like I watched some, uh, some YouTube stuff after it and saw like him standing out there with his arms crossed yeah, doing yeah. his interviews. I also saw him blown up with his arm on the street and yeah. the same arm that you see across him is now on the street yeah. and stuff. And in the movie, they depict that pretty well, the respect and the admiration he had around Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. When you look at it sort of loosely and generally, yeah, then it's an accurate portrayal. Uh, was, it, was there what parts of the movie versus the real story? What, uh, is there anything you'd like to mention like that or that you liked or that you did not like or that you wish they had included? Well, you know, I'll preface that by saying I'm a, a local, you might say regional writer. So I was absolutely gassed that this thing got greenlit and it moved forward. It came out. And I credit the original producer, Tommy Reed, who said... He was determined to get this thing made into a film, and it was going to come out in the big screen. So Tommy did a nice job, and then eventually partnered with Code Entertainment. But, you know, if I had to criticize anything, uh, maybe the the number of explosions, it, it wasn't, you know, they really dramatized that, dramatized that a lot, you know, to make it perhaps more commercially appealing. Um, and some of the other details, the love interests and things like that, where the details may not have been, the actual real story may not have been readily available. Mm. But I'm, I'm thrilled with it. It's, it's done great. It, I think it's, it's, it's been on Netflix. It might be on uh, HBO Max now. It's on HBO Max, yeah, for sure right now. I mean, it is. It's a, look, as an Irish guy myself, you like to, to you know, have the Irish guy be the anti-hero every now and then. But, you know, there is also that, that idea of, like, in the movie anyway, Danny Green could do no wrong. The guy knew everything. You know, he was all, the only bad things ever happened to him was he was a victim of circumstance. And it's like, you know, sometimes these guys know what they're doing, right? These guys know yeah. what they're getting the, into. The, the story is, is glorified. It, it, things get fictionalized. And these guys are sometimes made into to romantic heroes. But, you know, the truth is organized crime was a, was really a, a cancer on, on society. So who, who was the real Danny Green? Who, in, in your estimation, you know, and now you have a very, very interesting perspective when it comes to this because you grew up in a in a mafia family. Well, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that. Maybe with a with a blood history, you might say. Sure. But, but, my, but my father was, like I said, he was on the fringes. In fact, when uh, when uh, the the Vincent D'Onofrio character John Nardi was killed, that happened right across from the musicians' union. So my father and a lot of other people heard the explosion and ran across, and he knew John, you know, because his office was right down the street on Carnegie in Cleveland. So, uh, you know, my father was connected to a lot of these guys because they, they, they owned the nightclubs that the musicians played in, mm -hmm. or they had influence, or they, or they hung out, they socialized at the, the nightclubs. Uh, probably the, the, one of the best known in, in Cleveland is the old uh, theatrical grill. The theatrical, which yeah. features prominently in the uh, in the film, but your your grandfather, your father's father, yes, was was a made man. 
Well, I, I don't think they actually had inducted and made men at that point. This was in the 20s. He was an immigrant. Uh, he had six brothers, so there were seven Perella brothers. They came from a town called Licata in Sicily and uh, eventually got in with the Leonardo brothers, who were their friends uh, in Sicily, and basically got a lock on the wholesaling of corn sugar, which was used to make corn liquor, which, uh, from what I understand, which I learned is, is kind of a... Um, uh, a chemical cousin to bourbon, I believe. And it mm-hmm. was a popular... Uh, rain makes that. corn, corn makes whiskey. And whiskey makes your baby feel a little frisky. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> any, any, anything else you guys need, you let me know. The uh, So your grandfather... Is get, he's a, if you don't want to call him mafia, that's fine. No, he he's, was definitely he, mafia, but I, I don't know that they had made. I'm just trying to be sure. accurate. Sure, no, absolutely. Made, but yeah, they were the they were essentially the second mafia family in Cleveland. Interesting. And then your father was on the fringes, but wasn't in. And then you, two generations away, not only become a police officer, you become captain of police. Chief, I was a chief, chief for yeah, chief. just just over ten years. Yeah. Your, your family uh, is is in a Cleveland suburb, not Cleveland. Yeah, your your family's prone to leadership positions. It would appear, right? Like you're in positions of leadership. Did your father have anything to do with the uh, formation of the uh, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That was the musicians' union that, no. that did that. Wasn't I think it? that came. I think that came later after he was out. After he was out. So now, I'm I'm interested in uh, your great grandfather. So he. Or your your my great yeah my paternal grandfather your grandfather uh, yeah Christian uh, yeah this guy's Christian's great grandfather so he your uh, your father he passed when your father was six or seven you said five or six yeah I think six okay years old. what uh and what what happened there so he started with uh, like I'm, I'm interested in his life so he he came over here he got hooked up with the with the the corn with the what was it you said the corn, corn sugar? sugar yeah the corn sugar yeah. which then they were using the bootleg. Yep, and like we mentioned before, Cleveland was a good spot for bootlegging, um, also just for bringing stuff in from from Canada, right? Because yep. it was across the Great Lake. Yes. So what? Where? How did he? Where did he meet his demise? How did he? So so basically, uh, you know, they were partnered with the Leonardo brothers. There were seven Perella brothers, four Leonardo brothers, all from Sicily, and uh, they worked together for a time. And then in 1927. Uh, the the story, as I believe, is that the a business manager worked at one time or another with both of them, engineered the murder of the two top Leonardo brothers, and that was the beginning of what is known as the Sugar War. And then bodies, you know, continued to fall. First, uh, my uncle, uh, great uncle, Uncle Joe, and then Uncle Jim were killed in 1930, a few months apart. And then in 1932, my grandfather, Raymond, and his, who was the youngest of the brothers, and his brother, Rosario, who was the oldest of the brothers and their bodyguard, were killed while they were playing cards. Wow. Uh, did, uh, who do you think did it? Probably the Mayfield Road mob, who was becoming like the... The mafia family, the the uh, the more powerful, more like a power politically vacuum, connected, kinda. Uh, power change, a succession of power, you might say, uh, you know, and then pretty soon they they exerted the most influence as far as uh, you know a mafia family or organized crime family. What what made wow. the city of Cleveland so susceptible to uh, 
to organize crime, do you think? All, well, all the way up to the to the 80s, really. Yeah, before. well, it was a big city. I mean, if you look at, uh, a lot of people think that the mafia or La Cosa Nostra, they think, uh, you know, Chicago, New York, and maybe Las Vegas. But if you New look Orleans, at, yeah. New Orleans, uh, Philadelphia. But if you look at uh, the real history, there was probably, depending on how you count, anywhere from 22 to 26 crime families, mafia families across the country, Midwest, East right. Coast. They owned Cuba. They owned a country. Gambling. Yeah. Kansas, yeah. Kansas City was a big mm -hmm. big hub. Yeah, California. Arkansas. Became. Believe it or not, Arkansas. Arkansas, huh? Mm -hmm. who, was the, who was the big guy in, uh, in, in New Orleans? Was that... Uh, uh, Traficante? Yeah. I thought Traficante was, uh, was, was in Florida, like Tampa. Uh, Carlos Marcelo, maybe. Carlos Marcelo. He was, he was yeah, the big yeah, guy yeah. in. Uh, Wait, the, I'm impressed. Very, I'm impressed. Thanks, thanks. The very first instance of the mafia in America is New Orleans with the the Black Hand. Yeah. Was the very first, yeah, right. you know, and then from there, you know, obviously you had the immigration and and then mm -hmm. when when prohibition took over, it just you know, forget it. It amplified them in such ways, you know. And I guess that when you were a police officer in the '80s and '90s, you then had to become a police officer during during the drug wars. Yeah, in fact, that was one of the first things we started learning about to be careful about the, um, uh, the, the drug cartels, you know, and their trafficking and being, you know, close to the freeways in Cleveland. Uh, yeah, that was... Well, you have, you have Youngstown's a tough place of Ohio. You know, people that don't know Ohio think Ohio like Columbus, nice area. I mean, there's some places in Ohio that are no joke, man. I mean, Youngstown, Akron, some places outside Cincinnati, Hamilton County, No Bueno. How's how's tough? Area? Cleveland is you know. Well, you have good you have good and bad areas. There's you know great areas in Cleveland. It reminds Columbus. me very much of Jersey. Yeah, I, I agree. It reminds me very I, much of I Jersey. I said the same. So I I had actually when I fought CM Punk, I fought him in Cleveland, and uh, all the like the fans I was meeting it was it felt like I was meeting like Jersey. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was very. I, f I found there to be a lot of similarities there. Yeah, for the Jersey people listening, I said this before the show, and I'll say it again. If you Cleveland to me is like if Newark tried it all, and if Philadelphia just completely gave up. So like that's, it's, yeah, my, I have a my, fun time with it. My, my I love my people had a blast. Love in Columbus, Ohio. I love. That's where Columbus. I spent most of my time in Ohio. But we would go, we would go up to High Cleveland Street, a lot. Columbus. <sighs> Columbus Funny Bones, my third favorite club in the whole country. Yeah, I got I I don't know. Uh, Yo, when, you you say, Matt, when you say, you when you say, Matt Brown. What? Your boy Matt Brown's out there, yeah? Yeah, in Columbus. I was saying anyway before. Uh, <laughs> what was that? He was kind of steamrolling me a little bit. I was trying to, I was still trying to talk about Cle Cleveland a little bit. Uh. Um, so I we had a great time in Cleveland. I don't know that I totally get the comparison that, that it's, it's if Philadelphia gave up. I've seen some, spent I've, a lot of time in Philly. I've, I've spent some. I've spent. I've spent a good amount of time in Philly. I didn't think Philly was like all was like that much better. Really? I, this, the, the spots in Cleveland where I was at, it was it was like kind of beautiful. Yeah, Cleveland's Cleveland's great. I, I would have said compared to Philly. I would have said yeah. Uh, well, you and I disagree, friend. Yeah, I'm, I might need to see some other spots in Philly. Maybe. The parts at least I was in was like meh. Depends you know. on where you go. I mean, there's beautiful areas in all these cities, and there's there's bad areas too. It just depends on. There's where no you are. beautiful areas in DC. Place sucks. <laughs> No beautiful area. <laughs> no, I'm messing with you. There's beautiful areas in all these of cities. Oh, there's beautiful places everywhere. Yeah, there's beautiful. There's pockets, beauty everywhere. Pockets are good. Pockets are bad everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, except for San Francisco, that place sucks. And uh, what else? Where else do you hate, Jim? <laughs> Houston. Where can, else do you hate? Houston huh? can suck a dick. Um, Houston, huh? Ugh, so overrated. 
so Houston's huge. That's it. It's just like massive, sprawling suburbia with like a desolate downtown and oppressive heat. Go to Houston. It's great. What What do you think? What do you think, Rick? What was the temperature today here? Yeah, (laughs) right? 93, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, It'll be 84 in like the middle of the night. (laughs) Just be sweating. I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it at all. I, I I like the heat. Sometimes though, it's like it, it can definitely get a little oppressive. Like you walk bit. out and you're like, "Oh my god!" It's a little and what? Yeah, and the humidity. I like, was gonna take a nice. Why walk is it humid while breathe. it's raining? What the? What's that about? That's wild. But we don't know. have the we I don't, don't have the bugs in Cleveland. They got those like those uh, those gnats that go up like seven floors. That that stuff's crazy. Remember that with Jabba Chamberlain when they had all the bugs all yeah, over? Yeah, them? yeah, yeah. That happens like like once every what? Five years or something like that. Midges, I think. The midges. Canadian soldiers, I think they call them. Canadian, Canada messing up. Canada just tried to just tried to kill us with their with their stinking timber. Oh man, that was terrible. Yeah. Did you guys you guys didn't get any of that, did you? Not really. I didn't. Maybe maybe some people noticed a little bit. You know, it was an bad. irritation in their throat and eyes. I it was bad in yeah. Jersey. We had both yeah, heard, gone yeah, up yeah. to Jersey. It was terrible. Are you a terrible. big fan of Machine Gun Kelly? Not really. No. How about Drew Carey? Drew Carey. Love Drew Carey. Like sure. Drew Carey. Yeah. Wayne Brady. Wayne Brady. Yeah. Sure. And there is all I know about Cleveland. <laughs> That's it. You got uh, you got Stipe Miocic. Stipe one of the, Miocic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the goats. Yep. One of the heavyweight goats. Got Stipe. Firefighter. Yeah. 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 Joe Table. Joe Table back in the day. Jose Mesa. The. Uh, one of the the best teams to never win the World Series. Those mid '90s Cleveland Indians. What a squad they had! My God, Jim Tomey batting seventh. You had a you had a middle of the I lineup. Tomey. That was Roberto Alomar, Carlos Baerga, uh, Albert Bell in all of his testosterone glory, and uh, a young Manny Ramirez. Pitch to that lineup. Can you imagine how bad the Cleveland Indians pitching had to be to not win a World Series with that? Yeah, Charles Nagy as your number one. Clean it up. Clean it up. Let's go. Anyway, so <laughs> you're talking to one of the few uh, guys from Cleveland that's not a sports, big sports fan. Really? Yeah. Your but entire I, I, your entire economy was based on LeBron James for a decade. You don't like? I, I watched baseball years ago when uh, Buddy Bell, uh, Andre Thornton, Rick Manning. Wow. Yeah. Who? Can't remember the other names, but yeah, that was a long time ago. And then I felt like if if you if you wanted to have an intelligent conversation about sports, you had to, you had to read the sports page mm-hmm. every day to keep up because then things started changing so often. And there's just so much Jeez. losing for so long. <laughs> I mean, you got the Browns out there. You had you had. Uh, I mean, the, the Browns just... changed their uh, their like mascot or their emblem. Oh, did their, they? Yeah, they. I think they put a like a bulldog on that. You pull that up, Christian. You see, that's... Well, it's always been a bulldog, I thought. Maybe they just got a new one, though. They got a new bulldog? Good for them. Yeah. I like Cleveland. I'm glad that we're doing this Cleveland tourism bit right now. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could drive up some of the home prices, get a little, like, real estate action on this one. Mayor of Cleveland, hook hook us up. I think Matt Brown's doing good uh, in doing some real estate deals now. That's a shout-out to Columbus. Yeah, I love it. So your, your family started. Your grandfather comes over. He's an immigrant. What made you want to get into police work? Was it what happened to your 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 grandfather? No, that really had nothing to do with it. I, I, I developed an interest after I was probably 12 years old, and I got, uh, for Christmas, I got a police radio. Not a scanner, but a, but a tunable radio. And, and, and we lived in Cleveland Heights, which is one of the bigger suburbs. So there was a little bit of action, you know, police action. And uh, that thing was on... 
you know, like like uh, sixteen hours a day, and uh, it was interesting. I think that pulled me in to hear all the different things that they do, and then uh, and then I had a cousin join the Clevelandites Police Station, I think, or Police Department, and that sort of uh, locked it for me. But you said that your family gave you pushback. It wasn't what they wanted you to do. Well, my mother and father, yeah. Well, you know, uh, they, they didn't want their son to go on the police work. That's understandable. Mm. Uh, but uh, but my plan was to get into police work, and I persevered. And then uh, after playing drums with Sammy Davis Jr., I gave that up. And Speaking of which, uh, the police. your your wife's gone. If there's any other yeah. stories you had left out <laughs> from the memoir. That wasn't mattered. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The... Uh, it's well, it wouldn't be about old Christian you, over here. You left. You left performing to become a cop. My God, I feel like my mom and dad prayed for that every day for ten years, and I would give this up to become a cop. I think that's what they well, wanted so bad. Oh, either a cop or a lawyer. That's what my dad wanted so, so, so badly. My but, dad said to me uh, that I, uh, I also said, like, I guess your dad said wanted you to be a lawyer. My dad said to me that he thought I'd make a great lawyer. I always kind of felt like that meant he thought I was an asshole. <laughs> I hope not. I hope that's not what he meant. I don't know, but you know what I mean. Like if if a kid, if a, a parent's like, "Oh, you'd make a great lawyer," it must be must have been like a little bit of a pain in the ass in some in some <laughs> degree. Means you like you know to I mean? win, though. It means yeah. you like to win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really what a lawyer yeah, is. Like it's a, a professionally trained winner at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, it's like an argumentative little shit. <laughs> you'd yeah. Be a good lawyer. Yeah. No, that's a big problem our government's facing. Is ninety nine percent of them are lawyers. They don't care about what's right. They just want to win. They just want to win. They just want to win. So you are a police officer for how long now? I was for 33 years. I 33 retired. years yeah. on wow. the force. Four years ago, I retired. And wow. you got, so you were writing these books, obviously, while you were on yes. the force. That is how you do civil servant work right there. You're well, getting, no, no, not while I was catching. <laughs> you're catching overtime. There's some traffic <laughs> codes that need to be duties. put up. Yeah. And you're chapter six. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're doing this. When, when did you write uh, To Kill the Irishman? Uh, it was published in uh, 1990, uh, 1998, that, and uh, it took me four years. Well, that's very important to me because this is the, To Kill the Irishman was your second book. Yes. That means that you did two books, hard copy research, no internet, no Google. Yes, yeah. Doing right, the right. actual yeah. hard copy research. What yeah. was your process? Right? A lot of time at the library. Great question. With the, uh, the, the, the uh, microfilm of newspaper articles, sometimes magazine articles, and you'd be, you'd be rolling through manually on a screen looking at actual film, a strip wow. of film on a spool. And um, uh, some interviews, there are a few old timers that were still left, you know, uh, you, that you personally interviewed? Yeah, that I, that I, but I, that I interviewed. And there was uh, some paper left. Uh, the commander of the police academy, when I was in the academy, when he learned about what I was doing, he took me over to the coroner's office and introduced me to uh, a friend of his who was uh, like an office manager or administrator. And she told me how to make a request to get uh, old records, like from the murders of the Perello brothers and the Leonardo brothers. And, and, uh, and then she made copies copies for me and they included the file included detective reports and police reports too so that was very valuable did in in the course of your research did you uncover anything that that was interesting to you like did you see you know being a police trained mind did you see maybe there were some inconsistencies in in the official story or was there anything that stood out to you about you know maybe something that that was being done that shouldn't have been done you know as you're going back over this it's not just like you're a normal reporter i think the thing that stood out the most was almost all of these murders went unsolved really yes really. yeah officially unsolved now why do you think that speaking is? about in in both books 
in in uh more, more the, so in the rise and fall of the Cleveland Mafia in the early okay. days. You know, uh, yeah, there were a lot of unsolved murders. My my grandfather's murder uh, is is officially unsolved, but okay, you know, uh, they they had the police back then had their um, suspicions, and I have my suspicions. What, why do you think they went unsolved? I think because back then um, uh, there was a language issue with the people in the in the, in the neighborhoods where the, the Italian immigrants uh, were from. They were afraid to talk, and, and these uh, these killers back there, they back then they were very efficient. Mm. You know, I mean, they'd just wait around the corner from some someone, two or three of them, and uh, boom, it's over just like that. They're gone. Could bigotry have been a part of it? Is there something where it was like, oh, let the let the immigrants kill each other? Like- I don't. I don't think so. I, I think anytime there's murder, because this would happen later, as the as the uh, as organized crime sort of uh, became more organized, and they started treat the younger guys started treating like you mentioned, uh, Meyer Lansky. Uh, they started treating it more like a business because they knew that the murders attracted too much heat. Bad too much, for business. Too much heat. Bad for business. Too much heat from law enforcement. Was there an understanding uh, when you were on the force of there were some guys that maybe they knew, I, I, you know, alluding to what they saw, what we saw anyway in uh, the Irishman, they knew who was doing what business, but as long as they kept it to themselves, there was they were not to be bothered. No, no, and and uh, you know my my involvement as a cop had nothing to do. I wasn't involved in organized crime. We, we had almost no organized crime cases at that time. This this happened as you asked before. Like mm-hmm. how old was I? Uh, Danny Green was killed in '77. In uh, uh, ironically, coincidentally, in Lyndhurst, which was the town that I worked in. Out of all those suburbs, you've been to Cleveland. All those suburbs in Cuyahoga County. Uh, but I really had nothing to do professionally as a law enforcer with the organized crime. Th- this project was all separate. All this research, all the interest in. in the yeah, we're not, we're not trying to like get you. You know, we don't think like you. You know, it's but we're. Well, it's actually the truth. Though. It's interesting that you know again in the movie, and, and you did say that there were some disparities between the book and the movie. The there appeared to be, or at least the Val Kilmer character was like he knew who what Shondor Burns was doing. He knew what John Nardi was doing. He knew what Danny Green was Everybody knew, but as long as they kept it to themselves, there was like this kind of unwritten well, rule. I feel like that's that's common in all, a lot of, you know, police versus crime practices. They know that these guys are doing it, but they have to prove it to Well, that that's the away, thing, because I, I got to disagree. I, I think they would have put these guys in prison uh, if they could any have, right? time that they could. But they and there, and there were times that they were able to convict them. Uh, and that Danny Green, in his case, he became an FBI informant, and he was a he was considered a high he, ranking. And he did that almost immediately when he first got uh, busted, uh, when he became the head of the of the union, of the Longshoremen's Union, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's when he he started his relationship with the FBI. Yes, you've okay. been doing your research, both you guys. I'm impressed. Well, you know, trying to. Trying to show up. We got a best-selling author here. We, you yeah, know, we got to come. We got an intellectual. We got We got a, a chief of police and an intellectual powerhouse and here. And it's it's this stuff. I find this stuff very compelling. It's really interesting stuff. Too. Oh, it's you know it's, I mean? uh, it's it makes for great stories. I mean, it's 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 it's. Uh, I mean, true crime is a big one, but this is a sub sub genre, you might say, of true crime, and it's a very popular. One. I, I think the the craziest part of the whole story to me is who killed Danny Green. Was it Ray Ferrito? Yes, Ray Ferrito was one of one of the hit. It brought him in from uh, L.A. Now I've read different things. I read he killed sixteen people. I read he killed thirty people. I read one thing that said he's suspected of as many as sixty murders. Yeah, I don't believe any of that. 
Any of that. Oh, I believe he was responsible for maybe one, maybe two murders prior to Danny Green. Really? Yeah. And now he's taking credit after the fact? Well, you know, these things get blown blown out of proportion, you know, and, and somebody exaggerates the number, somebody writes about it without doing the uh, research. But I don't think, I never read anything that Ray Ferrito was responsible for that many. And he, he turned state property almost immediately after that, correct? Uh, pretty much, yeah, because uh, they made they made mistakes uh, um, when Danny was murdered. Uh, when they when they use a remote control switch to blow up the uh, bomb as Danny was coming back uh, from his dental appointment, in which the we were line. saying one of the worst ways to spend your last few hours. I know, <laughs> you know, to get him. Like, oh, I'm going to the dentist. Like you could, you know what I mean? Oh. Of all the things to do in your last few hours, yeah. get, get him on the way in. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. like right? come on, yeah. Yeah. yeah, be a good guy. Get him yeah. on the way before. Yeah, he's sitting there with a toothache, going, Ah, man, I hate this toothache. I'd do anything to not have this. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the bombs too, man. What a you're, way to you're, go! I'm sorry, though. You were saying uh, with the the switch from saying? the. You were saying with the switch, there was they, yeah, they fouled the remote up control. with the murder. Well, with Ray Ferrito and uh, Ronnie Carabia from from the Youngstown area, important Cleveland uh, organized crime figure in Youngstown. He's sort of uh, was the overseer of overseer of the of the Cleveland mob's interests in. Youngstown. They were in, in in the getaway car, and one of them was driving, and the other one was in the back seat with the remote control switch. And that, I mean, when when do you ever see something like that? There's a couple circumstances where you might, you know, somebody under arrest in a police car, mm-hmm. somebody in a cab or an Uber or whatever. Yeah, back uh, then, it so, would have been seemed very odd. Yeah, the, back, is, you know, today it's all right. This guy's in an Uber. It, it, but, and there was a uh, yeah, right. It, it, and there was a witness, a uh, young couple that saw this. And the girl was a sketch. She was an artist, and she made a sketch when she got home of huh. the uh, the driver. I think the driver was Ray. She made a sketch of Ray Ferrito, gave it to her father, who happened to be a cop. Jeez. He wow. turned it over to Cleveland Police um, Intelligence Unit, and they recognized from the sketch that that was Ray Ferrito from Erie, PA. That's like watching uh, the first forty eight. I don't know how true it is or not, but it's like it seems like ninety percent of police work is just dumb luck. Like it's like the first forty-eight. Have you seen the first forty-eight? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I have on occasion. Yeah, that's an important number, you know, to to get moving with your investigation. Yeah, it's something like uh, within the first forty-eight hours, you're most likely to solve a crime. It's like yeah. an insane number. It's like ninety ninety percent or something like that. If it, if it's it's specific to violent crimes, um, but the. Uh, but like the way that these guys get caught all the time, you're just like you, See, the mistakes and shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah but but also shit. it's just yeah. like, yeah, 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 you blew the guy up, and they, there was a witness. Oh, that sucks. And she's a sketch artist. Oh, what? And their dad's a cop. a cop. What yeah. the? Come on, yeah. this is insanity. Right. Come on, like you watch the first forty-eight and stuff like that all the time. It's like, yeah, I saw who did it. How'd you see him? Well, that dude owed me twenty-five dollars, and I was coming over to collect, and then I saw he killed the guy. So now I'm like, if he ain't gonna pay me, I'm just gonna tell you where he did it. It's like. <laughs> What? Yeah. You could have been coming to collect at any other time and you saw him do it? That sucks. I mean, you know, the guy probably deserves to get caught, though. I'm not like pro uh, criminal here on most accounts, but, you know, it's. And, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of investigation. It's a very wide, wide ranging investigation. One of the things that helped is the is the different levels of law enforcement, like the Leonard's Police Department, Cleveland Police Department, the FBI, uh, um, the um Alcohol, tobacco, and, and uh, ATF. firearms, ATF, federal, you know, they all worked together, created a strike force. I think they had uh, 
at the state with the state uh, charges, they had two county prosecutors assigned to the to the strike force, you know, to the task force, and they worked jointly. And that was one of the first big cases, I think, in organized crime where uh, all those different levels were not competing so much with each other. Well, it's legit terrorism. You can't be having together. cars blowing up all over your city. Like, right, that's, and there I were mean, a lot of bombs going off. That's yeah. not a lot good. of collateral damage. That's not good for anybody. That's not good for business. It's like, hey, man, uh, like, hey, you want to open up a business in Cleveland? Sure do. Car blows up out in front. You know what? Yeah, maybe not. I think I'm good. I rethink that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Cleveland needs a dry cleaner. So what, <laughs> I think what, all uh, right. what led to Ferrito? Uh, did now after so after the uh, the bombing, yep. they had fouled up a little bit. They got the sketch. Um, now did the Cleveland mob look to take him out? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, he's he's the, the the one witness who can put all the other ones uh, uh, in in jail. So. Let's just eliminate him. And when he found that out, according to what he said, that's when he decided to. Uh, the Cleveland mob seems flip. a bit reckless compared to other mobs. They seem they seem a bit wild. They were, may, may, you know, for the longest time, they didn't have a whole lot going on as far as uh, uh, ha- having enforcers that went out to do this kind of thing. Things were kept kind of quiet uh, for for a few decades. There just wasn't a whole lot of conflict. So when this happened. There weren't. They didn't have many capable enforcers that you just could go out and just, you know, wait around the corner from Danny Green, boom, boom, and he's gone. Mm. And uh, so he was a um, he was a tough opponent because of that that circumstance. And who were the Irish guys that Danny Green was surrounding himself with? He had a there was, crew. There was Bill McCorder. He had a well. Those were those were f- fictitious. Oh, they were fictitious. Well, okay. some of them were, and some of them weren't. Okay. And that's a one. That's another issue because you guys ask, like, what kind of problems do you have with the movie? I wish they would not have used the real names of characters uh, if they were not going to portray them accurately. Accurately, I think generally speaking. Who, yeah, they, who's an example of that? Um, uh, Keith Ritson. Um, Keith Ritson is a real guy or not? He's a real guy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was portrayed by uh, uh, Vinnie, Vinnie Jones. Jones. Vinnie Jones. Jones. Bullet yeah. Tooth Tony. And uh, there, there are a few, a few other ones. I think Tommy Sinito, um So I, I wish they would have just created fictitious names. I think what they did is they and they looked to me for some of this research. Uh, who, who was who was gone and who was still here? You know, and if the guy was gone, they would use the name. If he was still here, they'd create a fictitious name. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Who who made it out of those wars? Who, who is there anybody that made it out? Out Ferrito, we know. Ferrito made it out and he, he was state property. We talked about enforcers. There was a guy named Eugene Ciasulo. His nickname was the Animal. He was probably the most capable of uh the enforcers, and that's probably why he was targeted uh first. And uh, he was almost killed with a bomb uh, planted on his front porch. So he was taken out of commission. In fact, he came down to Florida to uh, recuperate. Huh. So he uh, he made it out. Um, yeah, Ferrito. There there were a few other ones, but a lot of them wound up in prison. You know, next next go around with uh, federal federal indictments. Now, how accurate was the? movie into saying that the Danny Green bombings helped expedite the national RICO case because uh, I, I worked on a project, I directed a project called Mafia States of America with um, Michael Franzese and Sammy Gravano yeah, and yeah, yeah. they pin, they they really pin it, uh, the fall of the mafia on two people, on uh, uh, Benino for writing the book and then for, um, for, for Joe Colombo. Benino. 
Am I saying Bonino correctly? I'm not sure. Are you saying when you say writing oh, the book, what do you mean Bonano? Bonano, oh, not Bonano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got to get my brain checked. I've yeah. been, I did this the other day it, it, with my Machida. Yeah. I don't know what's going Machado. on here. I got to get like some alpha brain or something yeah, going the, on here. Yeah. Yeah. There were books. There, there was the the Valachi, uh, Joe Valachi. Joe Valachi. The first yep. one. Yeah. That brought. You know the, the 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 mafia name to the forefront. You know, and made it made it a household term. Yeah. What was the structure? We we interviewed Rudy Giuliani, and he's looking at it, going, "Oh my God, all I got to do is fill in the blanks here." And you, you you handed me a RICO case. Yeah. Like you showed me exactly who's doing what. You actually literally connected the dots. Mm -hmm. So if I just fill in the blanks here. Like he couldn't when he read it, he couldn't believe what he was reading. Yeah. He was like, "I can't, I can't believe they actually wrote this," and that was Velacci and the, what was it was Bonanno first, Velacci second. Velacci was the first guy I think that actually Velacci papers. He, but he actually was the first guy to, to admit that it existed on on tape. Correct, Velacci. Um, I think yeah, I think he was uh like deposed. Yeah. He had like he did it in front of a like a like a what do, what do they call that where it's like a there's like a bunch of guys up there asking grand questions. jury was it a grand might, jury? Yeah, it might be. I'm, I, I'm not sure. Dude, I spent it was like with those a things that, 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 that Bobby life. that like uh, Bobby Kennedy w would do to people. Yeah, congressional you know I mean? committee, committee, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. subcommittee, on... investigative committee, yeah. Yeah, and, but, and then he had a crazy thing where he thought. Uh, who uh what's the shit? Now I'm doing it too. Uh the guy in uh in New York, who is his boss? Uh Genovese, Vito mm -hmm. Genovese. Mm -hmm. He thought Genovese like he gave I think he saw he saw him in prison and for some reason he thought Genovese was gonna want him dead. Mm -hmm. Right? And then some guy came into his cell or something and he thought this guy was there to kill him, wasn't. Genovese didn't even want him dead really at this point, and he beats this dude to death, Falachi, kills the guy. And then immediately after that, it's like, I'm, they're coming for me, and he turned uh, witness. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think the argument about the influence kind of, of Cleveland... Well, it's it, not just it, paranoid. For, forgive me one second. This is one of the things Gravano said that, that the feds would do all the time, is they would leak false information. Oh, they, like, plant a seed? Yeah, and they would say, These, you know, hey, look, you know, we shouldn't be telling you this, but we got we have it on good authority that, you know... Right, right. And now, once that's in your head, good luck sure. getting that out. Good authority yeah. that you're a target, in other yeah. words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the influence of Cleveland in the demise uh, is from the uh, production of Angelo Leonardo coming out is at the time, uh, who, who was the acting boss of the Cleveland mob, flipping after, uh, I don't know, a year or two in prison, uh, federal racketeering charges, drugs and murder he flips mm -hmm. and at the time he was the highest ranking mob boss ever this was before before gravano you just didn't really hear a whole lot about him because he didn't you know he did what he had to do testifying testified in what in was his the, name angelo leonardo never heard of him yeah he was the son of we talked about the yeah, sugar war you, before yeah, leonardo brothers you. he was the son of the mafia boss he avenged wow. his father's murder in 1929 i think he was 18 at the time and that was his um, entry into the Cleveland mob. And then he eventually rose cool. through the ranks. Yeah. But he, he flipped uh, after a year or two in, in prison, and he was the highest-ranking mobster uh, to, to betray the, code, the Sicilian Code of Silence, Omerta. Omerta. Where, uh, where, when, around what time was this? What time period was that? 85, maybe? Oh, really? Oh, it's like right before Gravano. Interesting. Maybe, uh, yeah, Rico really changed the game, man. Once they started throwing 100 years at people, it was over. Yeah. You know, like, you know. Taking their property, seizing seizing personal property. Yeah. Uh, that, was, yeah. that was obtained with, with illegal money. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, that was that was one of the things Franzi said. It was like, you know, you look at a guy and you say, look, you're going to do 10 years. And he's like, yeah, I'll knock it down to seven, whatever. I'll come out. I have my money. But now you're looking at consecutive life sentences. And it's like, okay, I think I'd, I think I'd like to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, Leonardo was a key witness in the, the straw man trials. Have you heard of those? It was the, uh, uh, the story that's portrayed in the movie Casino. Oh, Sharon Stone the straw Joe, man Joe trial? No, I'm, I'm not familiar. Yeah, the, the casino movie, skimming though. trials. Casino. Oh, the skin. Yeah, yeah. Love yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of the skim. That was big. Yeah. And uh, that was where Kansas City had a big Kansas involvement. Kansas City, like Milwaukee, Cleveland, Chicago, and Chicago, Las of course, Vegas. Yeah. They're pulling out. They're basically stealing from the casino. So mm. so when that came down, they, they dubbed it the straw man trial, straw man one, straw man two. And Angelo Leonardo was a key prosecution witness. And then he... Uh, testified uh, in the uh, the big commission trial that came, what, maybe a couple years later, where the bosses of the, of the New York mob families were put on trial. Yeah, uh, they just they just did a, a Netflix on that a few years ago. I think Francis is in it as well. Really? Yeah, uh, I forget what it's called, but yeah, it's on Netflix. Fear yeah. City? Not Fear City. Fear City. Fear City. That's it. D- documentary. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fear yeah, yeah. City. Fear City was very good. Yes. Yes. It was very yeah, good. Yeah. Real yeah. good, yes. Yeah. You, would need to, you need to take a break? No. All right, cool. The, and then you uh, mentioned the Senate uh, Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Angelo testified before them and laid out the whole history of the mob, you know, like from, from when his father came here, the bosses, the different families, and uh, there's there's a, a whole file on uh, testimony that they used to educate. Uh, th- th- he educated the senators and investigators on just the whole the whole layout of the whole La Cosa Nostra. From how, the earliest days. How strong was the mob in Cleveland? In New York, there, you know, you couldn't uh, you couldn't get a, a garbage hauler without it being mob owned. There was entire the entire uh, the ports were mob owned. You know, I mean, you know, it's very famous that Roosevelt went to the mob during World War II and you know asked for help patrolling the, the ports. Yeah, the yeah. the ports and you know the the um, when Rudy Giuliani uh, helped get rid of the mob, he he bragged that prices across the city went down. 30 percent because there was a they, they assumed 30 percent of all public services yeah. uh the cost of all public services was being yeah. used as a kickback there, there, yeah there was a time where i think like they said like one in like five dollars went to the mob in new york in new york yeah, yeah. and that, oddly enough the infrastructure hasn't changed much. It just all goes to the government now. All goes now. to the government now. Yeah. <laughs> they they yeah. got rid of the middleman, yeah. but the little guy is still paying the big, sure. just not sure. to the same people. Yeah. Was it the same way in Cleveland? Was well, you were you were asking about the the, the, the position, like how powerful they sure. were. And I think going back to the twenties and thirties, they say they were third in power after New York and Chicago. And part of that had to do, like I said, they're they're placed geographically between the two cities. Mm-hmm. And Cleveland even had a spot, Cleveland, Chicago, Cleveland and Chicago had a spot on the commission, the newly created Mafia Commission in in New York. So they were powerful, but as the years went by, I think their power uh, dwindled, their influence dwindled a little bit. Still pretty powerful through the What 60s. led to the waning of their power? I, I think it, 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 it said that that the, a big part of it is the fact that the 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 longtime mafia boss was not inducting new membership, so the mm. membership was aging, and pretty yeah. soon the guys were all sixty and seventy, and they then they had guys that were in their. 30s. Well, the demographics of the town changed, I would imagine. Cleveland turned out to be a very Eastern European town over time, right? Yeah, well, there were a lot of Eastern European. Yeah, I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not inducting guys named Miocic into La Cosa Nostra, you know. It's, you know. Well, you, you stopped having those those. Uh, you know, if you were if you were in the mob and you had a, a child and you had any sense, you had a son, 
You did not want him getting involved in that business. In some cases, these guys became attorneys. <laughs> You're talking about attorneys. And, and in some of those cases, they would go on to defend their fathers or, or uncles, maybe, mm. in, in these uh, organized crime trials. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, especially you can see it from that position of like, yeah, my dad's wrong, but you know, look at government does things wrong all the time, and you know, sometimes these mob guys and the mob families really see government as as bullies, really. You know, that are, you know, they they do have that kind of romanticized Robin Hood aspect of, uh, you know, even like Sammy would say, I never hurt, you know, I was a soldier in a war, I never hurt nobody that didn't have it coming. It's like, eh, I wonder. I wonder how everybody else living in the neighborhood felt, you know, like, you know, I didn't sign up to have this next door. He was door. the greatest guy around. He's the greatest guy around. He was a good fella. What like, about the murder? What murder? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What Now, um, last question on this, then I, then I want to get to your, your next book, There's More Bodies Out There. Uh did the Cleveland Mafia have its own families, or did they kick up to the to the same five families as as everyone else? They, they didn't kick up, but they were represented by I think Mick mentioned the Genovese family. Yeah, they, I think each of the other cities outside of New York were represented on the commission by a specific one of the one of the five New York crime families. And for Cleveland, it was the Genovese family. I think at that time when this was happening, it was uh, interesting. Tony, so the commission, Tony Salerno. So the, it was so Fat Tony Salerno ran the the Cleveland Mafia as well. Well, I, I wouldn't say he ran it. I think I think the he he represented Cleveland on the commission. He was portrayed, by the way, by uh, Paul Servino. That's right. Yeah, Paul Servino, yeah. fantastic. Love yeah. Paul Servino. Love Mira Servino. So if they wanted to make uh, uh, new members, like induct new members, you were asking about my grandfather. If they wanted to make new members, they had to get permission from New York. So in some respects, you're interesting. You know, it was like an affiliate in in some ways. Yeah, that's very that's 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 very very interesting. You have Cleveland Mafia, very tied in, and then they're the next generation are becoming cops and lawyers and it's it's fallen out now you have kind of the same underground was then taken over by gangs in the 80s then yeah now you still had young people that wanted to be involved in this this way of life the, the mobsters you know so there were still younger guys that were getting involved it's just the uh the the law enforcement mechanism of local state and federal especially you, you mentioned the, the anti racketeer uh law rico uh all these things were they were getting better they were getting better the federal prosecutors were getting better uh witness, witness security program the u.s marshals they were getting better at protecting uh people i mean they were already good i don't think they really lost anybody but they proved that they could even though a guy was being targeted uh by the mob they, they showed they were able to protect someone if they decided to flip go to work for the government and they'd bring them into the witness protection or witness security, WITSEC, you know, the WITSEC program. So all these things, and, and it, but plus the, the culture was changing, you know, the old culture where these guys uh, looked up to their uncles and fathers as heroes, that was changing. So you didn't have as many street-educated guys that, that uh, w would be capable of doing that kind of work, but, but, there, but there were a few. How, how did your father describe his father to you? Growing up, well, he didn't remember a whole lot about his father. He he he, he remembered a, a few scenes when he was killed. You know, he was actually um, being watched by a guy, a friend of the family, down near where my uh, grandfather was killed, 
And I think the guy took him, and he was five or six years old, my, my father, took him to get, uh, I don't know, candy or, or something. And that's when the shooting happened. And my father remembers being carried as a five-year-old kid with a guy that's running down the street saying, they shot Raymond, they shot Raymond, and up the steps to where he lived to let you know um, everybody know what had happened. He also remembered during the funeral, and this was, I mean, this was tough for me even, uh, uh, during the wake, they'd have the wakes at the house, like in the living room, you know, they have the casket, and that's where they'd have the wakes. And they'd have a kneeler, you know, you kneel down, say a prayer. He remembers standing on the kneeler, looking down at his dead father. You know. Wow. Yeah. It's very powerful. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. While 15 people are eating a, a salami provolone sandwich at the repast yeah. in, the, in the room next door. Yeah, that's... Gabagool. A little, oh, yeah, you know, hey, there's no reason to go hungry. He's not eating it. But that's... Uh, and then you become a police officer. Did you ever have a conversation with your father about, you know, kind of living in between those worlds? And um, a big thing with some of those guys that I've talked to was, and whose who's, uh, family became prosecutors more than police officers, they still didn't want them going after their own. They still didn't want them prosecuting yeah. Italians. That was something that they were very, very strongly it. against. Yeah, I believe it. Um, you know, is that, it, you know, you're one generation removed is that something? He, he did not want me to write the book, the first book. Really? Cleveland, Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia. He, not, he did not want me to write it, yeah. Why is that? He just didn't want me to, to dredge up something that had been, kind of, for the most part, lying dormant for, you know, several decades, you know. Was he embarrassed or would it, was he afraid it would be no, painful? he wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't afraid. I think he may have been afraid for me. You know, uh, getting involved to bring that out, but he just didn't want it dredged up. And there were also some of his first cousins that didn't like the idea either. Did anybody reach out to you to stop while you were in the middle of, of writing it? No. no. But when when the book came out, and then eventually To Kill the Irishman came out, and then when the when the movie got made, these same cousins, I think there was a little bit of a sense of of pride. Now this is maybe you know ten or fifteen years later. And, and plus the, the, the kids, the cousins in my generation, I think they were interested in learning about the whole story because there were four brothers who were killed, you know, four out of seven. And they all, for the most part, had big families. So that seems like a movie in and of itself. Well, the rights, I, had, I now have the rights. They recently reverted back to me and I'll be republishing the book in about a month. Did you know you had a, uh, a film when you, were, when you were done with To Kill the Irishman? No, that was not on the radar at all. Not until um, Tommy Reed contacted me just before the book went on the, uh, on the shelf. Young producer and, uh, of, of Italian and Irish heritage and he wanted to do something about that combined heritage and somebody sent him a, new, a newspaper article um about uh the book coming out and that's when he got in touch with me yeah before that, we get before we get in the third book i gotta make my push here we need a, we need some audio uh versions of it now oh i know now the yeah. rate we have no, rights right. and stuff look you're right everyone's got these on them yeah. you know what i mean i can be driving home from here and i could i could be listening to a book and i i do often oh you know what i mean yeah i sure. think it'd be it'd be a great i know uh, i'm missing the boat on that for, yeah yeah. 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 Instead, it, it, we're going to listen to RFK on uh, Rogan. But you know, it would much be it would, it would be much better for be much better for Mick if we were listening to. There's more bodies out there. I can I can assure you that. Oh yeah. The Cleveland Mafia book is on audio. It's it is? Audible, I think. Oh yeah. That's Amazon's what I use. Audible. Yeah. yeah. That's but that's the only one. All right. 
and we'll put a link in the description. Uh, these are wherever these are sold. If anybody wants it, go into the description of this video and they can pick up all three books. That'd be nice if you did. Maybe if you ask Christian nicely, he'll. Uh, you can email. You can mail him here. I'm, Pay for the postage I'm a, I'm yourself, and we'll get them signed up I'm, for you. I'm a big fan of uh, like audio because if I'm if I'm like watching a movie or if I'm reading a book, like that's all I'm doing. You know what I mean? I can be listening to a book. I could be brushing my teeth. I could be making yes, food. Yes. I could be driving. I can do many things. I don't, while I don't I'm know. Yeah. I don't know if you can tell this, but Mick likes doing cardio. He's a big fan of cardio. This guy. So like you know. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Somebody <laughs> has to be. Someone so, has to do it. Right? Someone has to do it. Someone doesn't have to do it either. Now, That's when not what your doctor told you. Fuck that quack. Uh, <laughs> when you're when you're optioning this off, now I'm interested in this because um, I, I've been in filmmaking and and documentary making, commercials, and I've been on the production side for ten years now. People have no idea how hard it is to make a movie. Yeah. They have no concept of when you think you're at the finish line of, of getting a movie made, you are at the one freaking yard, yard line. How many starts and stops did you have to go through it, with it, to make it, the Irish? The stars, and I don't mean the actors, the talent. I mean the stars have to align. Like a dozen stars have to align. It's very difficult. What was your question? I'm sorry. So what? how many starts and stops did you go through? What was the process of getting this actually turned into a book? It took nine years from when the book was Nine optioned. years. A decade. From when the book was optioned wow. in 1998 to when the book was filmed in 2009. What were some stars that were attached over the over the years that ended up dropping out or being replaced? I, d I really don't remember, but there were a lot. You yeah, know, I get a call, and my agent uh, Peter Miller was now who's now gone, but. He would say, "Hey, they're presenting the script uh, for, for the for the lead role for the Danny Green role. They're presenting it to this actor. Sometimes I knew who it was. Sometimes I'd have to ask my wife, hey, who's it?' <laughs> <laughs> but then two months later, it's would say, "Yeah, he turned it down.' And then a month later, I'd hear the same thing. They're presenting it to this guy, and this went on uh, maybe for a c couple of years. You don't remember any names? I, I, not off the top of my head, I, I don't. Okay. Yeah, but." But uh, there were quite a few, and they were they were well known actors. You know, they were well known actors, and uh, and then finally I got a call from my agent said that it's been green lighted. It, it's uh, it, we're going, it's going forward. It's green lit, and I didn't know at that point if it was going to be a made for TV movie or what. I had no idea who was going to be in it. He started rattling off some of the. The people, you know, Christopher Walken, uh, Val Kilmer, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, Ray Stevenson, you know, and on and on. I was like, oh my gosh! You know? Everybody uh, else who was a big, uh, you know, a character actor. You guys from are Sopranos. close with uh, your friends with Chaz Palminteri, right? Yeah, Chaz is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I heard that Chaz wanted to be in the film, but uh, what was uh, couldn't do it because he had another project going. This was in in 2009 when the economy, had, uh, the national economy, I think it tanked and uh, oh, there wasn't a whole 2009, lot going on. 2009, I think Chaz was just recovering from uh, throat cancer. But I, I, I don't. Right. Well, maybe that yeah. was it. Yeah. Or I could I That's could be wrong also. But the project in itself. Yeah, Chaz is the man. Chaz is awesome. Um, but like getting all those things together, then you you get you get. The, the director, you get the script, then you film it for a year and a half, then it goes through a year and a half of post production, then you got marketing. It's like, man, it's almost like you you know you're like, is this thing ever gonna happen? And I like, and then you finally get to see your product on the big screen. What'd that feel like? Yeah, I know. I, uh, we 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 were in Detroit, I think, for four or five days, and uh, just a wonderful feeling to see these scenes 
t- uh, adapted from you know a page in the or a chapter in the in the book, and they're they're coming to life, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but again, there were a lot of bombs going off, you know. So, yeah, and they I, set I bet. That shot up for, I bet. Set know. it up for three hours, and, and it's over in thirty seconds. I bet. Know? I bet that part of you is so happy, and then another part of you is like, "That's not the way I wrote it. Was fucking better." Like, why did they change that scene? That's not. That's not. What? I think not, every every. She didn't look author, anything like that. She didn't look yeah. anything like that. <laughs> I think every author who has a book adapted for film goes through that. Oh, Stephen Stephen Writer. Yeah. Stephen King is like so vocal about how much. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest directors of all time. Stephen King hates The Shining with every fiber of his being. Really, he I'm, hated I'm, it with I'm every fiber. I'm a big fiber. fan of uh, James Elroy, the author. He uh, he he's responsible for uh, the Black Dahlia, L.A. Confidential, were a couple okay. of that he and he hated L.A. Confidential. I love that movie. Gerard loves that movie. But I never read the book. I, comparing it to the book, I I didn't like and it. And you much. liked the Black Dahlia. I, I, thought, I did not I thought like the, the Black movie. Dahlia. Yeah, maybe because it was more like the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's that's a big. Everyone, it's such like a cliche. Like, oh, the book was better, you know. <laughs> so I guess that's more, that's another uh, plug to go go get. Yeah, kill the if you, if you like yourself, Kill the Irishman, you know? the book was better. The book was better. <laughs> Rated, uh, sight unseen. Yeah. There were a couple of the mob soldiers that bought uh, one in particular, Eugene Ciusillo. He, I got to be friendly with him, and he would buy uh, ten books, twenty books at a time. Really. He'd just have have me send them to him, mail them to him. He lived outside of Pittsburgh at the time. Well, you basically you he loved wrote, it. You wrote the history of his of his life essentially in in many ways. I mean, his that's... picture was in the book, you know, and he has, I think he may have signed books and gave away his gifts. Listen, you know, the the mafia genre on YouTube is so insane. It's a world that really doesn't exist anymore. It, it, it's um, in many ways, it's almost medieval. It's like when you think of knights or something like that, or yeah. you know, Robin Hood, and you know, it's it, it's just this world with camera phones and you know the panopticon surveillance it just doesn't exist anymore you know and it's and it's a part of americana it is yeah. we don't exist as a country without that aspect you know that that kind of black market and then you know having to overcome it as well but i do i do feel the same way you do it does get romanticized a bit yes there's a much. there's Too a much. lot of there was a there was a lot of bad that happened there yeah um, I mean, you were just talking about the taxes in New York, that how much it costs when you're talking about Rudy Giuliani. I mean, that's why I say it was, it, it, it was a cancer in, in, in areas that it may still exist, maybe uh, New York, Chicago. I mean, it's just not it's it's not a good thing when you're you're costing the the uh, the little people. Yeah. You know, uh, you're you're a bully money. at the end of the day. Right. I mean, you're taken from people and, and you know, you, you may be less of a bully than than the government in some aspects. But now the, the person just stuck there trying to live their everyday life has has essentially two governments they got to kick up to. It's not fair to them. And speaking of not fair, the bodies, there's more bodies out there. There is. Tell us about there's more bodies out there. I don't know we'll, uh, we'll ever find more, but I got uh, I uh, wrote a book called Super Thief, which is actually in advanced development. May go into pre-production soon. I'm, I'm hoping, fingers crossed. Only eight more years, but Yeah, well, it's been probably that that long. But in that book... Um, what a great title. There's super a character... Thief. Uh, super Thief. She's Super Thiefer. That's it. Okay. <laughs> We're not going to break out into full song. Not I was time. waiting. I was waiting. There, <laughs> but I knew uh, the lyrics, maybe. The, the main character that I wrote about, I worked with his wife at the time. She was a collaborator, Phil Christopher. Uh, 
uh, involved in the biggest bank of burglary at the time, uh, 1972, in Laguna Niguel, Orange County, California. But he, he spoke of uh, an associate by the name of Richard Henkel from Pittsburgh. And ta- I mentioned him in the book, uh, a couple of paragraphs, whatever. And it planted a seed uh, about this guy. And so uh, I was thinking about what's the next project going to be? Like, you always looking ahead. What can you get involved in if you're a writer or filmmaker whatever? And so I started researching this guy. And he was basically a mobbed-up serial killer with a police officer partner on his crew. Whoa. Yeah. What was his name? Richard Henkel, Dick Henkel, yeah, from Pittsburgh. And, uh, King Kong ain't got shit on me. <laughs> claimed up to 28 victims, uh, the way I count, uh, of, of known victims and maybe suspected by the police. Maybe That's a crazy a yinzer right there, man. Well, uh, yeah. That's a crazy yinzer. That's the uh, the interesting thing I think is that uh, he was still alive. He still is alive. And he's still alive right now. He's still alive. And about a year into my research, I thought, why don't I just try and contact the guy? He's probably not going to want to talk to me. Why don't I contact him? So I looked up where he was, what prison he was. I wrote to him and explained what I was doing. And he wrote me back pretty, uh, I don't know, like a month, a month later. And uh, he said he. he really was not interested it was a very courteous letter professional uh he said he was not interested good guy serial killer his, uh, take his uh i knew that was coming He's gonna take <laughs> his um uh secrets to the grave didn't want to talk about it so i tried to leave the door open you know having been a cop for 33 years and interviewed a lot of people i asked him if could i check back with him in maybe eight months a year and i let him know how the book's going he said yes that'll be fine that's what i did but i included some questions in it and uh and sure enough i think that sparked his interest and he thought maybe i had some things wrong because i asked him later and we we corresponded for 10 months before i finished my research and wrote wrote the book he thought i had some things wrong there another another jedi cop trick right there we're like yeah so uh everybody said the girl that you murdered was a five at best (laughs) okay first of all not one of the questions tens only yeah. Let's let's see. what 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 other fabrications are you doing over there? Fake news. Well, just, well you know, just just let me write the book. <laughs> How much did you end up getting out of him? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, we didn't solve any. Uh, he got a little bugged at me as he felt I was pushing too hard, talking about some unsolved murders, trying to get him to tell me more. But I think well, I added well, depth well, to the story. Well, was he afraid he was going to get time added on or something? Well, he, he mentioned something like that, but he said even if he wrote this, to, even if he was um, uh, convicted, it would be uh, he'd be dead before he got the chair because he was 83 at the time. He might be 85 years old now. Uh, but I, it added depth to the story, and um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a great story. The, the background is uh, uh, massage uh, parlor prostitution in Pittsburgh. It's where some of the, some of the girls, some of the victims uh, came from. You sure you've uh, never read any James Elroy? True story. This is a true, true story. And was hooked in with, you mentioned Youngstown, with a uh, uh, mob figure in Youngstown, a hitman by the name of Joey DeRose Jr. They were, I think, you know, they were pals. Yeah. But Hinky was the cop. Hankel was not the Hankel cop. Hankel was not the cop. No, he had a guy, a suburban Pittsburgh police department. A guy was on his crew, was never indicted, never indicted for murder. Um, but the investigators, and I was able to interview at length the uh, the original uh, homicide investigator, 
And he said they, they believed that the cop was responsible for... Uh, How did he end up getting caught? How did Henkel get caught? Yeah. Uh, he, um, he must have been at large for a very long time to be able to yeah. put in that much work. It was, it, was a, um, it was a murder that occurred at the um, airport in Pittsburgh. It was a, a girl that was killed in a hotel room. And uh, gory gory murder. Hankel probably did not commit the murder, but probably ordered the murder. And the the motive was um, was an insurance policy, a life insurance policy. And that's one of the ways that he made his money. Well, getting a piece of, of people's yeah. life insurance policies? Yeah, he'd, wow. he'd find girls, he'd warm up to them, and he'd, he'd basically deceive them. You know, let's fill this out for our mothers. You know, we're going to be working together, a little insurance for them. I'll fill mine out, you fill yours out. But uh, you know, oh, by the way, leave the beneficiary line blank, you know, and, and they, these girls, some of them were not the smartest in, in, uh, what, they, what they time period was he active? Seventies. Seventies. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Crazy wow. story. Yeah. It's wild. It's a Jack the Ripper type stuff, but it's like capitalist Jack the Ripper. That's crazy. It's like taking <laughs> care of these prostitutes and then cashing in on, I, I can't believe a life insurance policy would pay off on murder. That seems like a... Conflict of interest, a gross incentive. Yeah, I think they got a lot better at that, but one of them wasn't because the investigator contacted the insurance company and said, "Wait, wait, wait, whoa, don't don't pay that yet," you know. But he did get paid out on um, a, a murder that was committed. He wasn't uh, nobody's charge. It's still a cold case, but uh, he he got paid out on her. It was his fiance of all people. What do you what do you think about the criminal mind? What what makes people that are willing to commit these kind of hey, do you think anybody is capable of doing this under the right circumstances? I think they or? have. I think they got something wrong upstairs. <laughs> they got something that Some either is there, there that yeah. shouldn't be, or you know they they uh, don't have something that should be there. And in, in their in their upbringing, you know, uh, combination of things. Uh, I, I'm no psychologist in that regard but i'm sure it has to do with with the mind you know the right right and wrong what's right what are what are other people doing uh yeah interesting uh interesting character to be able to correspond and ask questions to serial killer yeah what now there's more bodies out there that was super thief no, this is, this that's, is that's Dick Henkel, and that, that's, that's actually Henkel. a quote. I know it's grammatically incorrect. It's been yeah. pointed out to me, but and that's why I have it on the back cover. But it was a quote by him that he told uh, as part of his plea bargain uh, when he was convicted of the murder of the girl at the airport. He, he had to um, detail his involvement in three or four other murders, and he also had to agree to lead the uh, police to uh, two bodies. And they found one. He did. He did make a try, but uh, for the second one, but but there was so much overgrowth uh, because years had passed by. And when they were leaving the search area, he turned to the homicide investigator and he said, "There's more bodies out there." And the guy's like, "Well, who, Richard? You know, who is he?" He said, "I'm not going to say because he had. There was nothing more that they could give him. He was going to prison for life. He got out of the the uh, Pennsylvania's electric chair, so he wasn't going to give uh, give any more." Wow, that's pretty incredible, man. That's an that those are incredible stories. What what attracts you to the genre? Uh, I, I I you know I've been asked it. I do. I've made a nice little sideline talking about the, the, his this history. And the all money. The, 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 it's, it's over the years. <laughs> over the years. You're promoting the books. How many and, uh, how but, many books do you have? Five. Five. Yeah. Okay. So the three we have here: Super Thief and uh, what was the other one? 
bombs, bullets, and bribes. It's a Shonda Burns story. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. You got some great titles, some man. Great stuff, Thank yeah. You. you got some great titles. That's the bombs, bullets, and bribes. It's yeah. way better than little, Plato Plomo. Yeah. A little, uh, what's that called? Uh... Alliteration. Alliteration. That's a little that? alliteration. No. That's a matriculation a of little, alliteration, a my guy. Alliteration. Yeah. That's awesome. So what are your thoughts on Chandra Burns? Most notorious Jewish racketeer in, in Cleveland. Uh, one of you mentioned Meyer Lansky. I don't think the, the comparison is there other than they were racketeers. They were Jewish. Chandra was more of a street guy, you know, because I've been asked, how come he didn't involve with the, get involved with the Jewish racketeers who invested in casinos and left Cleveland wound up investing in Las Vegas. I think he, he wanted to be uh, the big fish in a little pond. So he he sort of, uh, he was an overseer of the numbers racket, which was mostly black racketeers, you know, the illegal lottery that that preceded the uh, the state lotteries in, in a lot of cities. Uh, it even continued in some cases after the uh, state legal lotteries came out. And uh, he, he was a financier. If they, if they, if one of their numbers hit hard, and they had to have a big payout. Well, they had to borrow money to stay in business, and uh, they would borrow money from him. He was connected in the mobsters in um, in uh, Miami. Um, uh, Jaime Martin, I think, was one of them. They were they were pals. In in the movie, I felt like they kind of glossed over the the way uh, Danny Green and Shauna Burns were like very close, and then. They so they had the they went to get the money for him to open his restaurant. Yes. Chandra sent for the money, sent a courier, the courier got busted. And then Chandra was like telling Danny, you're responsible to pay back the money. Danny was kinda like, F you. And it, it seemed like a very quick, quick like very quickly now they're trying to kill he went right from there, all right, now kill this guy. Like well, quickly it seemed it like quite a quick developed quick, enough, maybe uh, I, yeah, I thought it, yeah. I thought it went it was a very quick like flip, you yeah. know? It, was there was there more to that? Uh, to that story? There, there probably was a longer period of time that things started heating up, but that's basically it. They start, they blamed each other for the loss of whatever it was, $75,000. Yeah. And, and uh, they started going after each other. You know, I mean, this was Danny Green. He, he was Dan, a, But Danny had, it seemed like he was like, like they were very close. I, th- I think they were. What Danny went to work after he uh, left the Longshoremen's Association. He got involved as sort of a, an enforcer and a driver for Shonder Burns and a, a couple of the other Italian mob figures like Frank Brancato. And uh, so he, he was really a mafia associate is what, what he was. Green? Yeah, Green. Yeah, Danny. And um, so, I, I, you know, they were close at one time, but then when that that happened, there was, a, I mean, I don't know the exact details, obviously, but the, there, there was a lot of bad blood that, that developed. They were blaming each other, and then one went after the other one, and that was unheard of. I mean, Chandra Burns was huge. He was an ally of the of the old Mayfield Road mob. He was very respected. He was, uh, you know, he was allied with. He was not really part of the Cleveland Mafia, but he was a close ally. What did you think of uh, Christopher Walken's portrayal of him? I, I thought it was great. I think it was more, like he said it would be in an interview, it was more Christopher Walken than it was Shonner Burns. I think he said he was surprised to learn that Shonner Burns was an actual character, a real, real person. But um, if you had to, great. if you had to cast the movie over, and it's a great movie, it's phenomenal. But if you were in ahead of casting, you can't ask me that. I have to. I, I, well, you can ask me, but I don't, I don't have the answer because right. I don't know, I don't know the talent. What, what I'll do is I'm going to write you a letter in eight months. Maybe you change your mind. <laughs> Let me do it, the research. How, right? Now, how many uh, hits did or attempted hits did Danny Green overcome and not uh, succumb to? 
How many did he survive? How many did he survive? Uh, It's probably a half half dozen. I'd have to go through, but probably a half dozen. Yeah, they tried to to blow him up when uh, when he and John Nardi, I think, were leaving the Cleveland Cleveland Hopkins Airport. The uh, so the radio sort of fuzzed and hopped out of the car. They shot. Well, that was another time. Yeah. Now, whether or not that actually happened, or whether Danny staged that, is a bit of a question in in real life. Uh, Did he stage that to try and make it look like? You know, somebody was after him in his earlier years. There's something where he had dynamite thrown him. in his car? Yeah, that's that's the, the claim. And that it went into the car, and he picked it up, and he tried to throw it out the, the um, window, but it hit the – throw it out the passenger window, but it hit the frame of the window, bounced back in. He jumped out, and it went off just as he was jumping out. It hurt his ear and had some other – Was was you know, Mike really Fratto a real, ca- a real character? Mike Fredo, yeah. Fredo? Yeah, he sure was, yeah. Yeah. Poor Mike Steve, Sh- Steve Sharippa, Bobby Bacala. Yeah, 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 I love love Steve Sharippa. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Yes, yeah. very likable character. Sad. That that one hurt. It was sad that that had to go that way, but it, it made it not as bad. The fact that uh, Fredo went after him, he, you know what I mean? Like he yes. tried to talk talk nicely to him yeah. to to get him out of the out of the deal, and then he, you know, yeah. he went right after. He him, he though. claimed defense, uh, self defense, in uh, what was. Um, you know, he wasn't indicted. He, he had a successful self-defense. That's considered one of the uh, attempted argument. hits. Uh, uh, not, not really. Well, it might, it could be. Yeah, it could be. But they shot at him. One of the uh, mob enforcers. It might have been one of Shonda Burns' guys. Shot at Danny uh, with a long rifle and missed. And the story is that Danny whipped out a little thirty-eight and started running at the guy, running at him, shooting. You know, and the guy took off from where he. Got in the Wherever car, and then Danny throws the gun, and I was like, "Man, that guy should really flip around now, <laughs> <laughs> go finish off the job." <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how true that, that part <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. No, it was just in the movie. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah right, right. Was, right. was Danny was Danny Green as much of a of a badass as he was portrayed in the I movie? Think he was, was. He, was he a legitimate uh, tough guy? I think he was. Yeah, and and you either back then, from what I understand, you either hated him or you loved him. You know, the Italians hated him, and the people in his community in Collinwood, not. Collingwood, uh, there's no G as is portrayed in the uh, movie, but in Collingwood, he was sort of, uh, for many people, sort of a folk hero. Like you said, Mick, a, um, uh, a Robin, Robin Hood, Hood character yeah. who, you know, helped people in the community, gave away turkeys during the holidays to the less fortunate. Uh, Point of clarity on Robin Hood. Uh, Robin Hood never stole from the rich and gave to the poor. He stole from the government and gave the money back to the people. Just throwing it out there. Just point of point of clarity. What's your point, though? Huh? What's the point? You're saying he's even... Are you saying that you like him even more for that? Robin Hood? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But now it's been co-opted to be like he's stealing from rich people and giving to the poor people. Now he's stealing from the tax man and giving the tax dollars back to the... To the hardworking people. So you, so you love that. Yeah, because taxation theft. Yeah. Become ungovernable. Like it Robin said Jesse Hood. James was like compared to Robin Hood, but then they were saying that that wasn't so much, he wasn't so much like that. Like he was more just like a. Jesse James and his band um, more or less wouldn't let go of the, the loss from the, from the Confederacy. Right. Yeah, a yeah, lot of a lot, a lot of, of what they did was just like, oh yeah, you want this country? Well, I ain't fucking, I ain't playing by your rules. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
He'd rob a stagecoach and be like, you all are, are getting the privilege of being robbed by the great Jesse James. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine imagine those guys back then would have to the announce who they were. The balls, you right? know? Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm George Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> look oh, at me. Look George at, Nelson. Look at stealing me. TV. Wow. <laughs> hey, George Nelson, we heard you stole TVs. Now, that's a damn lie. <laughs> I would never do such a thing. I'll tell you what, man. I don't know. That's my favorite scene in Role Models. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> guys, like, can you believe it? The he's, he's with the lawyer. I think you like, should take the deal. Yeah, he's like, you should take this. He's like, look at me. George, what, it was a George Nelson. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. Yeah, he's, this guy, he, um, he's talking to the lawyer. And the lawyer's like, they, they, like, they, like, he's like, I did not do this. Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it is, I, I didn't do this. He's like, well, they have you on film. They play the film. He's like, look at me. George Nelson <laughs> stealing TVs. Like, that, that's fake. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think Rick is the dumbest criminal you can? We we've met, we've talked about a lot of good criminals, a romantic criminal. Who do you think is the dumbest criminal you ran a, across in all your years here? I, I got nothing at the moment. I'd have to think about that. But there there is a lot of dumb criminals out there, <laughs> and that's probably yeah. why I'd have to think so hard about. Yeah. That. yeah, somebody out here just out here incriminating. Not all criminal masterminds. Not all criminal Not masterminds. Just, yeah, just, Not all, just dirtbags. Just yeah, let it ride. Yeah. Just get it. So what do you got next? What's coming up next? So I'm working on a memoir about my time as we, uh, uh, with Sammy Davis Sammy Jr. Davis two Jr. and a half years and growing up in a musical family. Everything that led up to that point and then the time on the road with him. How has your writing style changed over the years? I always I like to think that being a cop uh, improved um, the way I interviewed people and, and wrote. And the way I wrote, worked on books and interviewed people over there made me a better police interviewer mm. so uh but as far as improvement definite improvement over the over the years learning tricks from the not tricks but you know the editors working with editors house editors or editors that i hired when i um when i self-publish and basically trying to self-educate by what they do because they, they've got a unique eye to see these things how to word something better how to eliminate cut fat as they say and make it leaner and stronger less is more you probably heard heard that and and uh, uh so i think you know after three or four books the writing was getting was getting better having a book option having two book two books option now has that changed the way that you structure your your work to make it more palatable uh, it, it it does but but Prior to that, I think it it, uh, it it changes the way I think about taking on a project, too, mm -hmm. because now all I think about is, could this book become a film? Could it be adapted for a film? You ever going to take a shot at uh, fiction? Or like, uh, or like James Elroy, you know, where where you uh, you do that mixes uh, a little bit of both. Yeah, what what do they yeah, call that? They call that uh, mystic. Well, oh, there's a term for it. Dan Dan Brown is faction. Faction. It's there's a there's a direct literary there's a direct literary literary term for it. Chris, if you look it up, Dan Brown is the guy who does it better than anybody else. James James Elroy as well. But there's an actual term. James Elroy is my favorite. Where you know Dan Brown obviously you know has made a career off of taking. You know, five facts and putting one fictional thing in there and making you know. Uh, is it historical fiction? Is it? No, I got to look it up. But have you? Uh, I'm taking seven minutes to ask this question. Forgive me. The have you thought about perhaps taking on a fictionalized? Yes, novel? yes. I've, I've talked to my wife uh, about that. that. Someday I'd like to write a novel, but it's a different. It's a different thing to be able to. It's a, a, a great skill that these these the good ones 
have to be able to create believable characters mm-hmm. and believable settings and a, a believable plot line so that when you're reading it, it looks like, and it, it reads like, it sounds like this could really be happening. Well, just do I, the I George R.R. R. Martin. George R.R. Martin says all you do is you take history, you you stretch it, add a, co- add a fresh coat of paint, put a couple exclamation points on it, and boom, you got fiction. Sounds easy, huh? That's why well, that's <laughs> he makes it, he makes it seem pretty easy. That's, you know, because I mean, I mean, look at what he did with Game of Thrones. I mean, that's just... I have a difficult time writing. Sometimes it's drudgery. Well, I mean, he's also taken 40 years to write four books, so he's he's okay. maybe the wrong guy to... I mean, his books are 7,000 pages, but... You familiar with George R. R. Martin? I'm not. Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just the War of the Roses, but, you know, it's... I mean, he did it with, like, imagine the War of the Roses. With dragons. With dragons. Yeah. And, like fucking hot blondes and stuff and like heavy metal and like zombies yeah that's the war of the roses hell yeah you know and i'm gonna make the i'm gonna make john snow exactly like me what do you mean have you ever seen a picture of a young george r R. martin no can we we pull that up real quick look up uh young john snow and george R. R. martin and this is apparently the final straw. So his um, he he got kicked out of his own writing room on Game of Thrones, and the D and D took it over in the last two series, two seasons, uh, and uh, they they started going like off canon. The D and D, yeah, the David, uh, De- the the two executive producers, uh, Demioff and I forget the other Demioff oh, and Demioff okay. or whatever. I don't know if that was like a that's who everybody term that's who everybody D&D. like blames for Game of Thrones going completely off the rails in the last two seasons, and part of it was they got sick of Jon Snow being the hero and they wanted it, you know, because of the the time and you know everything like that. Right. They they wanted Arya the female to to kill the Night King and he's like, uh no, Jon no, Snow kill the kills King. the Night King. <laughs> Jon Snow kills the Night King. Uh spoiler alert. You never you never saw it? There you go. Oh. Wait, that, that's not him on the right. That's Kit Harrington on the right and that's a young George R. R. Martin on the left. So, all right. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not seeing it so much. You're not seeing it so much? Not, not so much. Not yeah. So much. Did not you so watch much. it, Christian? Game of Thrones? What'd you think? It was all right. Last season kind of sucked. Last season absolutely yeah, sucked. Yeah, last two probably seasons. Yeah. It was like, sucked. it was this, yeah, there, the best thing is there's this meme. There's like this perfectly drawn horse, right? It's like, you see all the <laughs> Three muscles and the ripples. It's all the ripples of the muscles and like its mane and all that stuff. And then the last, the, the last leg is just a stick figure. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's Game of Thrones. It was yeah. very well done. And then, yeah, really shit the bed at the end. If you have one of your movies optioned again, how would you go about the negotiation to make sure that, you know, your, your creative project is your vision differently in any way? Or do you not care? Or I, I don't know if I'd really realistically be able to exert that kind of leverage. Uh, but if I did, I would, I would, I would make sure that they don't use, um, as I was saying before, the names of real characters, except for maybe the, the, the lead, mm-hmm. the lead person that, that was a little bit of an issue for me. There were some people that were, were, were pissed, you know, calling me at the office at the police station, you know, and saying my relative was not, he wasn't shot in the head. He died in prison, you know, uh, things like that. Um, so that's They're one getting thing mad would, at you for that? Yeah, because I wrote the book and they, you know, they kind of assumed that I had complete control yeah. over the whole thing and I have to tell you them that I did not write the screenplay, I, you know. Yeah, they took their own liberties with it. You had to let them know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I, I understand that that's how it works. It, yes and no. Sometimes I don't understand that at all. Like Mickey Ward in the in the you know the fighter, he he loses the guys he beat. He fights guys he never fought in the movie, and it makes, it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sure. no. It's positive. It makes no sense. I have no idea why they did it that way. I some of these decisions you just don't know. Sometimes I think there's like crunches, and they're just like you know what. Fuck it. Like, you know, the second axe dragon. Let's just figure this thing out and let's just, you know, yeah. let's just wrap her up here. And that's, you know, so next thing you know, this thing becomes that thing. It makes no sense. But from a movie perspective, for somebody that never watched, for somebody that never read LA Confidential, I loved it because I have no idea. I'm ignorant to what I'm missing. I have no idea. Missing right. a lot, bud. You know, I, I love Kill the Irishman because I have no idea. Although I did a little bit. You know, they were very close to giving Danny Green the Al Ruddy treatment. Oh, they very gave him the close. Al Ruddy rub. Yeah, like when he takes the when he takes the when he takes the uh, the necklace off and gives it to the kid. I'm like, all right, kill this fucking guy. You don't want to be like right. me, kid. Yeah, hey, yeah. you don't want to be like me, kid. Here you go. Like he's fucking mean Joe Green giving a jersey or something. Like get out of here, yeah. get out of here. Don't tell me that really happened seconds before he got blown up. That did not happen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's... <laughs> Because, I mean, if that happened. I, I get asked that question a lot, though. Did that really happen? No, that did not happen. Hey, are you the Irishman? Yeah, kid. You want an autograph? Anyway, I got to go die now. <laughs> I, I can't Run along, that. kid. Make sure you get far away from the blast. Yeah, yeah. Get out of here. Get out of here. Go over and kiss your mother, kid. I'm Danny Green. I'm a good guy. Remember that before I die right now. <laughs> can't stand it. Can't stand it. Dude, this has been incredible, man. I really, really appreciate your time, Mister. And and uh, more than anything else, what's it like being interviewed while your son is behind the engineer booth? And what do you think about his is veganism? That the hot seat? Yeah, let's talk about that. That could be a little of a little bit of a problem. Sometimes when we're, when we're eating together, I have to basically tell him to just shut the hell up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm when he's, eating when he's, the lamb, I'm eating the chicken, I'm eating uh, the beef. Some lamb, some beef, some chicken. Yeah. yeah. So what, so when he goes home, what do you got to pick up a whole bunch of avocados and stuff for the kid? We do. Actually, we do buy a lot. I think my <laughs> yeah. wife buys like three dozen avocados every week. You know. It, it took it took a hundred years. It took a hundred years of genetics to go from a Tommy gun wielding gangster to an avocado eating vegan. Like if you <laughs> if you don't believe the pussification of America's real, I don't know what to tell. <laughs> Like this is, this is, I mean, how dare you? I mean, this is, this is like a, a this is how the wolf became a poodle in four generations right here. Talking about that hair again. <laughs> oh man. Cannot thank you enough for taking some time while you're with us. This was incredible, man. You're, you're the very first writer that we've had on. And this was, uh, this was great, man. Really can't thank you enough. Hope we, uh, and we, when we, you finish your memoir, come back on. Yeah, well, absolutely. You. I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you. Yeah. It's been fun. Rick Perello. That is Mickey Gall. That is Christian Perello behind there. I'm Gerard Michaels. This has been Gas Digital. We will see you guys next week. Peace.